Previously on the Stephen or Else podcast. <clears throat> okay. Uh, first, there was a Franks and Beans sketch. Um, that was for the cold opening in which a guy by the name of Chuck tries to buy a dozen eggs at a comic book store. Uh, then I did my intro and I saluted everyone for ignoring all of the good podcasts out there to listen to this one. Seems kind of counterproductive, but I guess that's what I did. Uh, let's see. After that was the comic book bit where I talked about Youngblood number one, which was interrupted by a fake commercial for a company that makes the books in your comic book collection valuable by destroying all of the other copies out there. That's uh, that's <laughs> that's actually pretty funny. Uh, then there was more Franks and Beans, where Chuck admits to killing his letter carrier, which. I don't know. That probably wasn't a good idea. Uh, and then I guess I wrapped it all up. So, yeah. Uh, that's... That's what happened. From a secret location deep within the hills of eastern Kansas, one man armed only with a microphone, his voice, and an unnatural gift for hyperbole brings you the most important podcast in all of human history. It's time to escape from the mundane, ladies and gentlemen. This is Stephen or Else. Hello and welcome to another episode of Stephen or Else, the podcast in which I get to do whatever I damn well please. I'm your host, my name is Stephen, and this, my friends, is your second episode. And what an episode it is. I mean it. Buckle in, folks. Put the kids to bed. Toss in a load of laundry. Throw on a bib. Comb your hair. And make sure you're near a toilet because this may very well be the single greatest podcast ever created. I'm being sincere here, people. I am not running off at the mouth or picking out my fish before the butchers tied their shoes. Not this guy, not this fella, not this block of cheese. I'm shooting you straight. So believe me when I tell you that this is one amazingly powerful and life-changing show. Now, I know that I'm a proficient podcasting purveyor of hebetudinous hyperbole, but that doesn't make me a prevaricating podcaster who deals in falsehoods and fabrications. No, 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 no. I'm just a boy podcasting in front of a girl or another boy, possibly a goat. I'm not really sure. I mean, I can't see all y'all out there. All I'm trying to say, folks, is that today's episode is going to be pretty damn good. And if I'm lying, I'm dying. Okay, I took that a step too far. I don't want to die. So, yeah. Welcome to the show, folks. This episode is just a bit of all right. What is your favorite thing in the world? Comics. Yes. Comics! No, 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 wait. Tell me about comics. Comics! 
way back in the late 80s and early 90s, Todd McFarlane had become like this totally super famous comic book dude. Starting out with books like Infinity Inc. and Batman Year Two for DC, it was as he was working on books such as The Incredible Hulk and The Amazing Spider-Man for Marvel that he began to build his brand. I mean, this was the fellow who was drawing The Amazing Spider-Man when they introduced Venom to the Marvel Universe, and that is not a small character. In fact, Todd McFarlane became so popular that he was given his very own Spider-Man title to both write and draw. The first issue, by the way, which was released in June of 1990, sold 2.5 million copies. Not too shabby. But then the ball dropped, and he, along with a number of other Marvel creators, left Marvel and formed Image Comics. Soon after, in May of 1992, Todd McFarlane published Spawn, issue number one, the second ever issue published by Image Comics, and it's the only title, along with The Savage Dragon, that came from that first round of books back in 1992 that is still being published today, 31 years later. Now, I'd like to say that I'm here to talk about every single issue of Spawn released thus far in its 31-year history, but considering that we're talking about over 300 issues and I've yet to eat my breakfast, how about we just focus on that first issue so that I can go fry up some bacon, scramble some eggs, and get a bit of food in my belly. All right? Sound good? Well, let's do it. But first, a word from our sponsors. The Stephen or Else podcast will be back after these messages. Greetings, podcast people. This is Charles Bland, but you can call me Chuck. You may remember me from the previous episode in which I tried to purchase a dozen eggs from my local comic shop. Boy, that sure was silly. Well, today I want to put all that silliness aside and talk to you about a subject that's no laughing matter. And that subject is pain. Tell me, fellow humans, are you tired of feeling moderate to almost no pain at all two to three times a year in the pinky toe of your left foot? Do you find that not a year goes by that at least once, maybe twice, you feel a slight twinge in that pinky toe and pulling on a pair of socks? Have you ever kicked a football with your bare left foot and found that seconds later, you could still feel the sting in your pinky toe? Well, now it's time to say goodbye to all that minor discomfort thanks to Triambla Cortex 323. But don't take my word for it. Here's the story of a complete stranger. Howdy, call me Skip or Captain Jeff. Don't matter much to me, I'll answer to either. I suffer mild discomfort in the pinky toe of my left foot, and it's something I've struggled with all my life. You see, 27 years ago, I stubbed that bare toe on a bookshelf in my bedroom. It had been dark, and in my infinite pride, I thought I could make it through to the bathroom without turning on the light. I've been paying for that mistake ever since. Well, after that night, whenever the temperature drops below zero and I step outside in my bare feet to grab the morning paper, I find that before I can even reach the end of the driveway, that minor discomfort hasn't only returned, it's spread to both feet. But thanks to Triambla Cortex 323, that incredibly mild pain is gone. Heck, I can walk through the snow without a stitch of clothing on and not feel a thing. In fact, I can't feel anything anymore. 
not even towards other people. Triambla Cortex 323, because little to no pain at all, just a few times a year, can sometimes be just a little too much. Call your doctor and demand that you be put on Triambla Cortex 323 today. Triambla Cortex 323 should not be taken on the same day you've eaten chicken. Triambla Cortex 323 should never be taken between the hours of 5.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. Triambla Cortex 323 has been known to cause paralysis in 85% of patients. Triambla Cortex 323 has been known to cause blood to gush from the eye sockets of 89% of patients. Triambla Cortex 323 has been known to cause attacks by wild rabid badgers in 97% of patients. Triambla Cortex uh, never mind. And now back to Stephen or else. Spawn number one was published by Image Comics in May of 1992. It sold for $1.95 and it was entitled Questions. It was written and drawn by Todd McFarlane with letters by Tom Orzachowski and the colors were by Steve Olaf, Ruben Rude, and Ollie Optics. The issue opens with a bit of narration by the titular character Spawn. He's questioning his existence, his return to the world. He was tricked, deceived, hoodwinked, double-crossed, flim-flammed, bamboozled, and he wants to die again. Yet, he's the one who chose to come back. He's just not sure why. All of this narration is backed up by two pages of dark, moody panels depicting first the earth in space, then the cityscape at night, specifically a church with spawn in shadow perched on the steeple, his cape billowing in the stormy wind and his eyes glowing green as lightning flashes behind him. Again, it's very dark and moody, and with the church, one might even consider it gothic. We follow that with a page of Talking Heads from 1987, five years previous to when this issue is set. Not the band, by the way, Talking Heads. I feel like I should clarify. No, these are television personalities from various news and opinion shows covering the death and funeral of a Lieutenant Colonel Al Simmons, who is survived by his widow, Wanda Blake. We have a CNN anchorwoman, an anti-government rant from a guy on Channel 2, and then a social commentator on Channel 7. We go back to the present, 1992, and we get a few more pages of Spawn just trying to figure out what happened. He knows that he died. He knows that he had someone special in his life, that he loved enough to make a deal with the wrong kind of people to come back to life. He's just not sure how he died or who this special person in his life might be. We as the reader at this point have figured out that Spawn and Al Simmons are one and the same. And as Al broods, we find out that whoever it was that brought him back to the land of the living, and it's strongly hinted that it was the devil himself, they also gave him power. In fact, we're shown a countdown clock showing four nines. This will come into play later. So Al has been given this power, so much so that he feels that he can do anything. But his memories were taken away, and he ain't too happy about that. At this point in the book, we get our first full-page shot of Spawn himself, which for us, seeing Spawn, it's not really much of a surprise considering that he's on the cover. No mystery being uncovered here. Not that I think that that's what they're trying to do here. I should also add that it's an awesome page. Spawn looks like a cross between Batman and Spider-Man with these glowing green eyes, a flowing red cape that's billowing in the wind, 
in the way that only Todd McFarlane can do it. And he's got pouches on one thigh, spikes on the opposite calf, and there are just chains all over the place. I mean, he is the total 90s package, and I am loving every single bit of it. I was and still am a big Todd McFarlane fan. I mean, this guy just does not give a fuck when it comes to how things should look. His capes and cowls and cloaks and such are so big, so flowing, just so massively long and billowing that while one part of your brain is telling you that such a thing could never exist in the real world, the other part of your brain is kicking that first part square between the legs and telling it to shut its stupid mouth because damn, that's some good looking comics. From there, we meet two police detectives, Sam and Twitch. Sam is big and loud. Twitch is skinny and mousy. In fact, Twitch looks exactly like an old boss of mine. And I mean, exactly. It's creepy how much he looks like this guy I used to work for. Anyway, Sam and Twitch, they're investigating the murder of a hitman, Carlo Giamatti, the third dead hitman in the last 48 hours. The man's heart had been pulled from his chest, and then he had been thrown through and out of a 44th floor window. The heart, they discover, had been stuffed in his mouth, and the two detectives, it would seem, are on the case. Elsewhere in the city, a group of men have cornered a woman in an alley where they plan on having their way with her before killing her. Spawn drops into the alley in what has to be my favorite page in the issue. I mean, just look at it. If you have it there with you, just look at it. If you don't have it there with you, go get it. Go on. I'll wait. I'm serious. Go get it. Still waiting. There you go. Look at it. Was I right or was I right or was I right? Right? I mean, damn, that is a good looking page. Anyway, Spawn drops in among them, telling them to go and to go now. Otherwise, he's going to kill him. Kill him dead. The thugs refer to Spawn as a young blood, which was the first title released by Image. I mean, I just talked about it in the last episode, so you probably don't need this, but here it is regardless. Youngblood by Rob Liefeld was a team of superpowered individuals who worked for the government, and they were very much in the public eye. See, at the time, Marvel and DC pretty much had a stranglehold on the word superhero. The big two treated the word like it was their own, and while each of them could use it willy-nilly, no one else was allowed. That meant that the other comic book publishers had to use something else, and they all tried to come up with their own terms, such as metahuman or cape, or in the case of image at the time, young blood. Now, one could certainly argue that in this issue, the word young blood, the way it's used, well, that it wasn't meant to be this all-encompassing term that took the place of the word superhero. That in this case, these thugs, seeing Spawn in his colorful yet dark costume, they thought he was a member of the young blood team. And that's a valid argument. And to that, I say, yeah, you're probably right. Personally, I always understood it to be Image's word for superhero, used because Youngblood in that universe was all over the media, 
So that's just what folks called superheroes. Kind of like calling all facial tissues Kleenexes or all adhesive bandages, Band-Aids or, or, or all photocopies, Xeroxes. It's, it's called a generic trademark or a proprietary eponym. I mean, I think the argument could go either way, frankly. But you know what? Since it's my podcast, I'm the one who's right. Anyway, back to the issue at hand. The street toughs make the wrong choice and fight back against Spawn. And soon he's throwing one of them through a window. Then he holds up one finger and a tiny glowing green ball of light gently glides out, floating toward the remaining bad guys. Then boom, it explodes and they run like the wind. Spawn tries to assure the woman that she's out of danger, but she appears to be just as afraid of him as she was of her would-be rapists. Before he can explain to her that he's one of the good guys, he's suddenly taken over by some sort of fit. Then he throws his head back and he shouts, No! As images flood into his head. Images of a woman mourning at a gravesite. She's familiar to him, but he just can't place it. Then her face suddenly turns demonic with pointy teeth and a long tongue. And as he wakes from this nightmarish vision, he finds himself being cradled in the arms of the woman he had just saved. We revisit the talking heads again, which I know I don't need to say this, but I can't help it. Not the band. No, it's those same three television personalities, but now we're in the present. All three are the same as those we saw in 1987, but the third talking head, who had been a social commentator for Channel 7, now works for E! Entertainment Television. The anchor from CNN is reporting on the murder of Carlo Giamatti from earlier in the book, though she refers to his murder as the fourth gangland slaying in the past two days. So Sam and Twitch were either saying it wrong or this anchor woman has her facts all kinds of mixed up. Well, actually, she says it's the fourth gangland slaying in the last two days, whereas Sam of Sam and Twitch said that they had three murdered hitmen in the last two days. So maybe there was a fourth gang member who was murdered over the past 48 hours. They just weren't a hitman. No prize achieved. Elsewhere, Spawn is stalking the back alleyways of the city, and eventually he pulls his mask and gloves off, only to discover that he is covered in charred flesh, as if he'd been set on fire and then left to burn. This little fact surprises Al just as much as it surprises us, the reader. We see the countdown clock again, but this time it's showing three nines and a five. This will become a staple of the series, though to tell the truth, I don't know how long it sticks around, because back then I think I only got about a dozen issues in before I stopped reading comics. Or... I just stopped reading Spawn. I, I honestly don't remember. We learn later that while Spawn is hugely powerful, his power is finite. There's only so much of it to tap into. And each time he uses some of that power, like he did back with the Street Tufts, making that little green glowy bomb thing, he loses that power. That's what the clock represents. It's a countdown to how much power he has left. We visit once more with Sam and Twitch in their office and they're talking over the case and Sam worries that they have some sort of rogue young blood out there and he's concerned about what's going to happen when he starts targeting regular people. Sam, by the way, appears to outrank Twitch. That's my guess. I mean, on the outside, they look like a couple of plainclothes detectives, 
but Twitch is constantly referring to Sam as sir. So either Sam outranks Twitch or Twitch is just super formal and polite. Also, I rather enjoy the dynamic between these two policemen. They don't get much screen time in this issue, but it's clear despite Sam being the dominant of the two that Twitch is the smart one. Twitch seems to be the kind of guy who prefers to think things through, while Sam seems more brash, more apt to dive into a situation without having any kind of plan in play. You know, shoot first, shoot again, ask a few questions, then shoot some more. Twitch is the brains, while Sam is the brawn. The issue ends with a demonic figure surrounded by flames, laughing his horned head off before monologuing, Simmons, if you think you've got problems now, I promise your troubles have just begun. <laughs> That's supposed to be my evil demonic cackling laughter. Now, I recently read this book because I was feeling a bit nostalgic. I honestly don't recall if I talked about this last episode, but I was 18 and working a second job at a comic book store when all of this image stuff went down. So, I got them all, and believe me, there was a lot of books. Now, I've said in the past that I don't recall Spawn being one of my favorites, and I know when I read this a couple of years back, for the first time since it had been published in 1992, I didn't find it to be all that enjoyable. After reading it today, however, I don't understand where my head was back then. I mean, maybe I was going through a real cranky period a couple of years back. I don't know, because This time through, I really enjoyed the crap out of it. The story, yeah, it's pretty basic. I mean, one issue in, and all we've had is Spawn saving a woman and then a great big bunch of questions. And that's okay, because deep, emotional, dramatic storytelling wasn't what this era of Image was all about. There's a reason the publisher is called Image, right? Well, I'm sure the fellas didn't set out to tell mediocre stories. I'm sure McFarlane felt he was doing some of his best work here as a storyteller, but the fact of the matter is that image at the time was all about, well, image over substance. Now, that would change eventually. I mean, it wouldn't be long before we would get both from an image book, especially when big names like Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore would come in to write some of these image books. But for now, or at this time, The first year of Image Comics, readers like me were buying these books because they looked great, plain and simple. And Spawn number one, yeah, it looks fucking great. Now, there's this age-old comic book question that's tossed around a lot among readers, which simply asks, which is more important to you in a comic, the art or the story? And really, that's not an easy question. However, I have enjoyed many a comic with a bland, generic story that had amazing art. On the other hand, I don't know that I've ever really enjoyed a comic with bad art, or at least what my mind perceives to be bad art. When I come across a comic like that, I have no idea if the story is written well or not, because the art takes me completely out of it, and I never finish the book. So, while the perfect comic is a seamless blending of great art and great writing, working hand-in-hand to create a phenomenal story, in the end, I guess I need the art to be at a certain level, and if it's there, the writing has to really suck for me to dislike the comic. Spawn number one, however, was great. I start looking through these pages again, and I am just so amazed 
by what McFarlane was putting down on the page. I mean, none of these pages are numbered, so this might be difficult, but some panels and pages that really stood out to me were, well, the second page is great. I love how dark everything is and the outline of the church steeple that we see in the flash of lightning. Then by the next flash of lightning, suddenly Spawn is there perched on a cross atop the steeple. Great page. Just love the, love the way that whole thing is laid out. The double page spread that gives us our first full look at Spawn is also great. I love the page where we first meet Sam and Twitch, especially that final panel of the two of them with the New York skyline beneath them. The stark white of the sky behind the skyline and the way Sam and Twitch are not just silhouettes, but the way each silhouette is colored to match the coats that each of them wears, Sam in black and Twitch in tan, it, it looks great. It's amazing. It's a, it's a well-put-together book. There's also that page where Spawn drops into the alley to confront the thugs who are about to rape that woman. That is a gorgeous freaking page. But my favorite bit of art in this entire issue is right after that little ball of green light comes out of Spawn's finger, the panel where it's just floating gently alongside three of the thugs. I love that panel, most especially the guy on the left-hand side, the one with the full beard and mustache. His facial expression told primarily just through his eyes and then how he's made of this solid pastel. I don't know what color that would be being colorblind, I'm afraid to say. But that panel, that guy is just the best. There's just something about it that I love so much. It's the one panel that stood out to me among other super great, beautiful panels and pages. That one stood out to me for some reason. I mean, McFarlane is, is he's given it his all here art wise, and it shows in every single panel. And yeah, once again, the story itself wasn't top notch, but the idea, the premise of the book in general is something that I find very appealing. Now, there are only hints of this in the issue. And if you've not read issues two and beyond, this will be a big bunch of spoilers. But Al Simmons, also known as Spawn, was a special forces military guy who died. Then he makes a deal with a demon named Malbogia to be brought back to life simply because he can't stand the thought of being away from his wife, Wanda. Malbogia agrees to the deal, but being a demon, the deal isn't quite what Al had in mind. First off, yeah, Al's brought back to life, but it's five years into the future, and Wanda is not only remarried, she's married to his best friend, and they have a kid together, something Al was not able to do for Wanda. Also, Al's entire body, as we see in this issue, is a charred mess. He's covered in burns from head to toe. He can use his new powers, given to him by Malbogia, to, to heal his skin. But here's the twist, folks. He can only make himself look like a white man, which, considering he's a black dude, is something he's not altogether happy about. So. What is this demon, this Malbogia, what does he get out of all this? Well, Al is now what they call a demon spawn or a soldier for hell whom Malbogia plans to use for, actually, I don't know that bit. I never got that far in the book, but it's pretty interesting so far as, you know, in regard to the premise, what's, what's being mapped out. I'm really enjoying it. I'll also add before I wrap it all up, Al Simmons was named after an old friend of McFarlane's who used to attend conventions dressed as Spawn. I met him once a number of years back, back in the 90s, 
uh, it was either in Kansas City or Chicago. I don't remember which convention I was at. I was attending a lot of conventions back then, but I met him and he was a super nice guy. And that was spawn number one. Meanwhile, in a sunny meadow. Dang, Abner, ain't it beautiful? I suppose. <sighs> now this sure is the life. Ain't you glad I talked you into closing the store early so as we could come out here and enjoy nature? <laughs> What's wrong, Abner? Nothing, I'm just out of sorts. Out of sorts? It's a beautiful spring day and you're spending it on your back in this sunny meadow. How in the world could you be out of sorts? Just look at that sky, Abner, not a cloud in sight. I'm sorry, Verge. I just ain't the lover of nature you are. You don't like nature? Oh, I'm a big fan of nature. I just prefer to view it through a couple of panes of glass in the air-conditioned comfort of my living room. Well, dang, Abner, I didn't know that. You ain't got to be out here with me. Go on home and relax your way. Nah, it's okay. I think I'll stay out here with you a while, if and you don't mind. Not at all, Abner. Not at all. Just, you know, try and relax. I'll try, Verge. It's just, well, I'm getting hungry. You know how I get when I'm hungry. Well, you get downright unpleasant. Nobody wants that. Go on, get something to eat. You can take the car. Thanks, Virgil. I appreciate that. It's, it's just... Just what? Well, you know Funtown? Funtown? Yes, Virgil, Funtown. What's Funtown? Are you serious? Funtown, the amusement park out past the lake, you know? No, I don't know. Ain't never heard of no Funtown. Never heard of... Where the heck have you been living, Verge? A whale's sock drawer? A whale's what? Funtown is pretty much the most magical place on Earth, Virgil. Well, I thought that was Disney World. Why are you like this, Virgil? What did your parents do to you? Me? You should talk. Your pa finds more joy in making you cry than seeing a baby smile. Okay, first of all, I'm a grown man. I don't cry. Oh, come on, Abner. I caught you in the store bawling like a baby just the other day. No, I wasn't. When? The other day. You were watching that commercial for the ASPCA, the one with all them homeless animals. Well, dang, Virgil, I ain't made of stone. So what about Fun Town, and what in the world does that have to do with your stomach? You know what? Never mind. Whoa, slow down there, Abner. You ain't got to get cross with me. I'll tell you what. How about we go on back into town and get some lunch? My treat. What do you say? Lunch, Abner. How about it? Abner? Are you mad at me? I don't know that I'm not mad at you. Okay, I don't know what's going on. One minute we're enjoying the day and the next you're mad at me. Did I say something wrong? It's not what you said, Virgil. It's how you said it. How I said it? How I said what? Like I said, Virgil, never mind. What's going on, Abner? I was enjoying the cool breeze, the sounds of nature, the smell of the grass. You're the one out here grumbling up like an old bear. You need food, but you won't go get food, which makes no sense. Then you start gabbing on about some theme park. I'm trying to help you, Abner, and now you say never mind. Dang it, Abner, if you don't tell me what's wrong, I'm going to leave you out here in this sunny meadow. <sighs> what's wrong, Abner? I don't want to say. Well, you better say. Not stupid. Okay, then. I guess I'm leaving. I mean it. I got my keys. This is your last chance, Abner. Bacon-wrapped turkey legs. What? Fun Town has bacon-wrapped turkey legs. Bacon-wrapped turkey legs? Bacon-wrapped turkey legs. Ooh, tell me all about them. Oh, you should see them, Verge. Turkey legs as big as my forearm and wrapped in bacon. I mean, they'll change your life. And the taste... You ever eaten Joy, Verge? It's like everything that's pure and good in life, 
wrapped up in bacon. That sounds like a little bit of heaven. We should go. We should go right now. Nah, they're closed. Closed? For the summer. Something about E. coli. Dang it, Abner, you got my hopes up. Now what are we going to do? Enjoy nature? Nope. Can't do it. You've thrown me off my groove. Get in the car, Abner. I'm taking you home. Can we stop for hot dogs on the way back? Hey, kids, you want to learn something new today? Let's go. Rabbits eat their own poop. All right, that's not entirely true. In fact, if this was an article online, I would consider that headline a bit of clickbait. However, rabbits do engage in a unique behavior related to their digestion, though it's not entirely accurate to say that they eat their own poop. What rabbits actually do is engage in a process called coprophagy, which involves consuming a particular type of poop called cetotropes. Now, cetotropes are not the same as the regular droppings one might find in a rabbit's enclosure or in the wild. These special droppings are produced by the rabbit's cecum, a specialized part of their digestive system. Inside the cecum, Beneficial bacteria break down fibrous plant material and produce cecotropes, which are soft, nutrient-rich pellets. These are quite different in appearance and texture compared to the harder, dry droppings we normally associate with rabbits. Cecotropes contain essential nutrients including vitamins, minerals, proteins, and beneficial bacteria. So, rather than eating their own feces, Rabbits engage in a fascinating behavior where they directly consume these cetotropes as they are excreted. The cetotropes pass through the digestive tract a second time, allowing the rabbit's body to extract and absorb valuable nutrients that may have been missed during the initial digestion process. Once the rabbit consumes the cetotropes, they are reprocessed in the digestive system and the rabbit derives optimal nutrition from them. It's a natural mechanism that enables rabbits to maximize nutrient absorption and make the most out of their diet, which is all plants. This unique digestive adaptation allows rabbits to thrive on a high fiber diet, which consists mainly of grasses, hay, and leafy greens. The ability to efficiently extract nutrients from plant material, including those found in cetotropes, is crucial for their overall health and well-being. To be clear, rabbits do not consume their regular dry droppings or feces that are typically found in their environment. Those droppings are waste products that have already been processed and do not serve a nutritional purpose upon re-ingestion. The behavior of consuming cetotropes is a normal and essential part of a rabbit's diet. It is not a sign of illness or distress. However, it's worth mentioning that providing rabbits with a well-balanced diet that includes high-quality hay, fresh vegetables, and appropriate pellet feed helps support their digestive health and reduces the likelihood of any issues. So yeah, while rabbits do engage in the practice of eating specific soft droppings called cetotropes, they do not, in fact, eat their own poop. At least not their regular poop.
All right, so I have one bit of feedback in regard to the previous episode, episode number one, in which I talked about Youngblood number one. It comes from the website, stephenorelse.com, and it was written by my Superman Super Show co-host, Ed Moore. He posts as Miskatonic, and he says, I was in graduate school when Image began. I second your comments about not understanding unless you were there. I have seen other new publishers arrive on the scene since then, and none of them have had the same impact that Image did. For me, I was looking forward to Wetworks the most, and unfortunately, economics in grad school forced me to stop collecting before Wilson's book was finally out. For Liefeld fans, I feel Youngblood number one still holds up really well. Let's keep in mind, comics at the time, especially for Image, were art-driven. Any amount of actual story in the books was a far second. To me, even now, the art is awesome. The story is entertaining, but the eye candy is bar none. Personally, I have been reading slash rereading Image from the beginning, and just this past weekend finished up books from January 1995 and into February. Hope to hear your thoughts continue for other Image books. All right, first of all, Ed, thank you for the feedback. Uh, I agree that at the time, Image was all about Image. I, I talked about that here in this episode. But for that particular issue, I just cannot get beyond the fact that the team waited for five hours for Vogue before they did anything. I just, I don't understand that kind of writing. While I get that the point here was that these books are supposed to look pretty, and this one does look pretty. I do have issues with some of the panels, but overall, I think it's a very good looking book. I, I, I'm a big fan of his art. It just does something deep in my heart, just stirs emotions that some artists don't. But I can't get past that bit of writing, regardless of how mediocre many of the other books were in regard to story. That's just, just, just bad writing. You know, I don't know what they were thinking when they have a scene in a book where all the various heroes are being paged to come back into the base because there's obviously an emergency. And yet all of them but one arrive. And the other just waits for five to six hours just to show them that she's not at their beck and call. And the others just wait for her. They don't even learn what the emergency is about. And thankfully, during that time, this emergency just continued to happen. It didn't, you know, they, they, it could have caused uh, quite the uh, world-ending event having the premier super team that works for the government just sit around cooling their heels, waiting for one single member to arrive because she doesn't want them to think that she's at their beck and call. I, I, can't, I can't get past that. So, yeah, that's, that's why I kind of poo-poo this issue. But I appreciate your thoughts. I, I completely understand where you're coming from. And I look forward to getting to January of 1995 and into February. I, I, I feel like it's going to take me another 20 years, though, before I get there. Anyway, thanks for the feedback, Ed. If you guys want to provide some feedback, Stephen or else at gmail.com or go to the website. StephenRLS.com. Well, there you go, folks. It's the end of the show. And I don't know about you, but I had a lot of fun. But alas, it is time to wrap it up. This episode was written, performed, produced, engineered, and edited by me, Stephen R. Orr. Questions, comments, complaints, and critiques can be directed to StephenRLS at gmail.com. 
Just keep in mind, I may read it out on a future episode. So if you don't want me to use your name, let me know. Find me online at Twitter, Spoutable, Instagram, and TikTok by searching for at Stephen or else. While you're out there on the World Wide Web, I invite you to join my newsletter, Stephen Says Stuff, at list.justanotherfanboy.com. This is a free substack where I will send every single podcast episode I host right to your inbox the morning they are released. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to give you and your fellow patrons podcast episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate the show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. So join me back here next time, folks, when I'm going to talk about more comics and just generally do whatever I damn well please. Until then, folks, I'll leave you with this one thought. Walking through a parking lot is the wrong time to be focused on your inner self. That's the kind of thing that's going to get you run over. Be nice to each other. Bye-bye, Daddy. Good job. Uh-oh. You know who you are? Even Steven. <laughs> He's pooping.